The pandemic, as we all know, was a different experience for different people. Some of us, the laptop class, isolated and worked from home. But others of us, the essential workers, were out there every day doing the work that it took to keep society from collapsing. The stories of the working class have often gone untold. But my guest on the podcast today has dedicated himself to interviewing working people on his podcast, in his reporting, and in his new book. And he believes their experiences deserve to be heard and remembered and thought about. One of the things that I'm constantly remarking on doing the podcast, doing the real news work, doing this book is just like, man, there's just such an infinite well of experience and pain and joy and love and yearning and memory, you know, all around us all the time. And it's such a crime that we never really give each other the opportunity to share those stories and to listen attentively and to validate them as meaningful. Maximilian Alvarez is a writer and editor based in Baltimore. He's the host of the Working People podcast, a show about the lives of the working class. He's also the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and covers labor for breaking points with Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty. Maximilian Alvarez's new book is called The Work of Living, Working People, Talk About Their Lives and the Year the World Broke. I'm thrilled to have Maximilian Alvarez as my guest today on Lean Out. Maximilian, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you today about your book. I think there's some synergies between your work and mine, and uh, we will get into the book in depth. But first, I want to spend a little bit of time on you and your story. I want to start by reading a quote from another book that I know has inspired a lot of your work. And this is The Oral History Working from the Great Studs Terkel, which you quote in your powerful monologue kicking off your own podcast. So Studs Terkel writes, it is a search too for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash. Talk to me a little bit about how Studs Terkel has informed your work. Big shout out to the legend Studs. Like you said, you know, I'm always fond of recalling the fact that I quote from his book Working in the very first introduction to the very first episode of Working People, which was with my dad. It was an interview with my dad, Jesus Alvarez. And, you know, I think that a lot of my own story and, you know, the kind of origins of how I came to do this work can be found in that very first episode. But, you know, I guess to, you know, maybe start where my dad starts there, right? I mean, I was born in Orange County, Southern California, first generation Mexican-American. And, you know, growing up with my siblings, it was always a big part of our upbringing to hear the stories from both sides of our family, right? The stories of struggle, the stories of kind of working their ways up from poverty. Both sides of the family definitely have long histories of poverty. My dad was born in basically a lean-to shack in Tijuana. And as we talk about in that first episode, 
his mother got sick and passed away from cancer when he was just six years old. And uh, their father had abandoned them. Uh, he was a migrant kind of farm worker in the United States. And, you know, one time he just stopped coming back and stopped sending money over. So they were really on their own at that point. And it was um, my great grandma, Petra, my bisabuela, who promised my grandmother, Josefina, uh, my dad's mom, on her deathbed. She promised my grandma that she would bring her children to the United States because my great grandma had connections with like, you know, immigrant churches in Southern California. And so it was through those churches that she managed to find families in different parts of Southern California to adopt my dad and his siblings. So they were split up, right? My dad and my tio Chano lived with one family. My tia Leti lived with another family. My tia Tera like stayed in Mexico for a while to try to kind of go to Mexico City, get their papers in order and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm very thankful for the kind of podcast that I do because it gave me an opportunity to sort of get those stories, those treasured family stories that I've been hearing growing up all my life, you know, on and recording. And right now my, you know, we have a number of sick family members, some of whom I may never, ever get to speak to again. And I'm racked with guilt and regret that, you know, I didn't get the chance to record with them. So it's just made me all the more appreciative of those recordings. And there was even one that we did that was kind of a follow-up to the one that I did with my dad, where I got the rest of his siblings and a bunch of our family members on to sort of record the story from their side. And it was incredible because that I think we published that in season two of the of the podcast. And there was a moment where, you know, my tios were talking about losing their mom and being split up. And at some point, everyone at the table just started crying. And my dad said on the drive home from that day, that was around Christmas a few years ago. He was like, you know, that's the first time all of us have sat down and talked about our mother dying. And I was like, you guys have been in each other's lives, you know, for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And you've never talked about this. Like that's incredible. But I'm, again, I'm glad that we were able to take advantage of that moment and that it could provide some sort of healing. And so, you know, I've learned so much from that side of the family through the podcast. Then on my mom's side, you know, my grandpa Fletcher, you know, came, was born at the tail end of the Great Depression. He was one of like 13 siblings in North Carolina, had his first job when he was six. And so we always heard about those, you know, he was a ball shagger at a golf course. <laughs> and, you know, so, so we always heard those stories growing up, but, you know, it was as kids, we always internalized it as like, Oh, like that's what our family went through for us to get here. You know, I was fortunate to be born into a middle-class home that my folks had bought and raised a family in for a brief, you know, time. And then uh, when the great recession hit, it all went away. Yeah. Basically for, let's say the first, you know, 18 years of my life, you know, we grew up in our home in Orange County. Uh, the world still seemed open to us and the future seemed open to us. And so that's, you know, we focused on school. We were always told, you know, again, about those stories of struggle from our family and that it was our job to kind of carry that struggle on by getting a good education, by not getting, you know, into crime and gang activity and stuff like that. But yeah, I think like that sort of 
that family history has always been with us and it's always been something that uh has you know kind of it's been a way for me to sort of center myself in this life like i said i grew up well like you know in that setting in orange county in the 90s uh, after the cold war you know i grew up very conservative and my dad in mm-hmm. fact when he became a citizen the first person he ever voted for was ronald reagan and on that very first working people episode we talked about how he voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And he explained that, you know, we lost everything during the Obama administration. And, you know, we were constantly being told about an economic recovery that seemed to be passing us by. And so I felt desperate, like maybe, you know, I knew all the problems with Trump, but I was just hoping that maybe a miracle could happen and we would get some help. And of course that didn't happen. And so, you know, I think that that's the sort of storytelling, you know, uh, the importance of, of family storytelling has always been there for me. But I noticed that, you know, after the recession, right, we weren't telling those stories as much. We weren't talking to each other nearly as much about what we were going through. We were instead just doing what good capitalist subjects do, which was punishing ourselves for being colossal failures. And, you know, really, it was destroying our family in a lot of ways. My parents' marriage was on the rocks. Our relationship with our parents was on the rocks. You know, I had graduated college in 2009. So like got spat out right into the recession. Mm. And, you know, I, I basically had two useless Russian literature degrees. I say useless, like obviously I find like a lot of value in them, but at that moment in time, there wasn't really much that I could do with them. And so, you know, that's when I had moved back home thinking that I was going to like help out while I was figuring out my next move. And instead, uh, I ended up kind of, uh, you know, working temp jobs, you know, showing up at the temp agency at like four in the morning to get whatever job I could just so that we could like, you know, have money for groceries and, and stuff like that, gas and all that good stuff. So it was in that period, which was about 10 years ago, like 2011, 2012, that was a big radicalizing period for me, I think, because it was it was when a lot of that conservative upbringing and ideology started to sort of fall off like cracked paint. Right. You know, like I was looking first, I was looking at our family and myself and I was like, well, I did everything I was told to do. Right. I did not, you know, get involved in gang activity. Right. I sacrificed a lot of time with friends, you know, to do extracurriculars and take classes at the community college so I can get into the best college I possibly could. And I did. And I, my brother and I went to the University of Chicago and I still, you know, ended up, you know, working 12 hour days as a temp in a warehouse. And I was like, well, what, you know, first I was like, what did I do wrong? But then I started talking to my other coworkers. I started seeing what my family was going through. And I was like, they didn't do anything wrong. They've been working their butts off my entire life it feels like something bigger is wrong here and that it's not just that we screwed up and we were, you know, getting what we deserved. And, you know, that was a really important experience for me working alongside a bunch of formerly incarcerated folks and documented guys. And, you know, you you just get into those kind of conversations about, you know, what's going on in each other's lives. You, You kind of Uh, shoot the shit and learn more about each other. You lean on each other, you build these great bonds and you really learn to see each other as human beings, you know, and you build that sort of solidarity that can be very life-saving in moments like those. And so 
I think that was an important part of my life where the sort of conservative ways of, of explaining the world around me didn't work. But it wasn't until the following years that I started to kind of like develop more of a systemic critique. But and this is the last thing I'll say and then I'll shut up. In the years after that, that's when we finally lost the house. And of course, my parents are very depressed about that. And, um, you know, they stopped going to our church. They didn't talk a whole lot to friends and family and stuff and like that. And so I could see like with my dad, especially it's like the lights were on, but no one was home. Right. And, and just in somewhere inside of him, he was punishing himself so deeply for, for all that he had had and lost. And my mom was doing the same too, but she was at least like a little more communicative with us, but it was really ripping us apart. And so I joke and I say like, in a lot of ways, the podcast was almost a ruse to just get my dad to talk about the trauma that we had gone through. It wasn't entirely that, but it was like a vehicle to say like, Hey, here's a structured time for us to talk about this. Other people are going to hear it. And he suddenly opened up in a way that he hadn't in years. And I think a big part of that was because, you know, he had been driving Uber and Lyft just to pay the bills and he wanted to keep his ratings up. So he would get into conversations with the people he was driving. And it was then that he realized that he was driving people who were his age, who were also immigrants, who had lost their homes, who were on their way to their second or third job. And he started to realize that it wasn't just him and that there were other good people who had lost everything because an unjust system had screwed them over. And so I think that was very important for me to witness because it made me realize once again that power Studs Terkel articulates in his book, Working, right? The real world-changing power of working people sharing their stories with one another and believing in the first place that their stories, our stories are worth sharing. And I really try to honor that tradition with the podcast, with the work I do at The Real News and with this new book. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I you're such a strong storyteller and it really comes through in the podcast, but it really came through in the book as well. And there's just a lot of empathy there and a lot of complicating the narrative, which is something I really admire. It's hard in this polarized time to sort of be open to the mishmash of views that people have. It, most people do not sit in one camp or another necessarily. And I would say most people understand that neither political party is uh, representing working class interests at this point. To go into the book now, I mean, I want to start with the story of the grave digger. I mean, this such a powerful story, so much information there. But also, I mean, looking at how people had to adjust during the pandemic. So just give people a quick snapshot of, of Nick and what his story was. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah, appreciate you asking about it. I mean, I, I love all 10 of the you know interviews that are in this book and I'm you know beyond grateful to all of the interviewees for sharing their stories with me a perfect stranger in in most of these cases so openly and vulnerably and couldn't be more grateful to all the friends and comrades and and colleagues who also helped connect me with the various you know folks that I've talked to for this book and, you know, Nick is a really incredible human being. As you mentioned, he's the first interview in the book. So he's quote unquote, chapter one. I am proud, like, because when I thought about doing this book, I was like, I want it to be like the podcast, right? I want the names of the chapters to just be the names of the people, 
right? That was very important to me. I wanted it to be very clear from the outset that like these were other people's stories. I'm really a sort of conversational vehicle to provide that platform, but this is not about me and it's not, you know, my job to sort of give a new title to their stories, but really give them the opportunity to tell their stories the way they want them to be told. And Nick even, you know, says as much in that interview, you know, like he, he realized halfway through, he's like, man, I didn't know how much I was sitting inside me, but no one's really asked me about this stuff. And, yes. and so just like with my dad and driving Uber and Lyft, right. I think, you know, one of the things that I'm constantly remarking on doing the podcast, doing the real news work, doing this book is just like, man, there's just such an infinite well of experience and pain and joy and love and yearning and memory, you know, all around us all the time. And it's such a crime that we never really give each other the opportunity to share those stories and to listen attentively and to validate them as meaningful. And you can tell that just, you know, by how much people shared for this interviews in this book. I think another thing I'm very proud of, not just in the Nick interview, but all the interviews is, you know, I told or books with whom the book is published that, you know, I did not want this to be a book just about people's jobs during COVID. It was very important to me to give as much as can be done in a limited, you know, text interview. I wanted to give a sense of that whole human being behind the job title, you know, all that quote unquote essential work that kept society from collapsing when COVID hit was done by people, right? With lives and histories and families and thoughts and feelings that deserve to be heard and remembered and thought about. And so we talk about Nick's life. We talk about how, you know, growing up in New Jersey, you know, how is basically through his dad, he fell into a job working at a graveyard in New Jersey. He walks us through kind of the experience of getting acclimated to that job and gives, I think, a really under the hood, to put it politely, sort of view of what working as a grave digger before and during COVID looks like. And I guess just, you know, a fair warning to folks, like <laughs> there are a couple points where it does get, you know, like pretty graphic, but there's no way to avoid that, right? That's what he does. And I think he also, Nick gives an incredible like depiction of how like the specific graveyard that he works at which primarily serves uh, people like Jewish people who, you know, follow a certain doctrine where like they can't be buried with anything that isn't perishable. Right. And so it's just like these kind of quarter inch pine boxes with wooden dowels in an old cemetery that has varying soil contents and stuff like that. And so you see in the way that he tells it, he's like, so when COVID hit and we started getting like double or triple the amount of bodies to bury that we normally do, we're racing around this old cemetery with this old equipment, digging holes up, dropping people in, trying to give families a chance to send their loved ones off the right way. It really stuck with me, like all that Nick and his colleagues have been through, because it really wasn't something that I've thought about when I was going through, you know, the experience of watching COVID unfold and, and all that good stuff. But we talk about that, you know, he shares his concerns about COVID, but he also shares like his own reservations about the media narratives about COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think one, you know, really important thing from that interview 
is, I mean, again, like I'm just constantly astounded by the brilliance and, and expertise and, and depth of our fellow workers. It's so wild to me that we live in a society that teaches us to view working people as so flat and, you know, like not having that kind of depth when I'm just like, you know, it's everywhere. Like you can't read Nick's story and be like, oh, this guy's just, I don't know, uh, a Fox News watching uh, idiot who doesn't like know what's good for him. It's like, no, like he has a very like intense and complicated philosophy about death that has come from, you know, decades of working in a cemetery. And I think that a lot of what he said was very beautiful and may and like changed my way of thinking about death as we were living through a mass death event and still are. But he also has perfectly logical and thought out reasons for questioning the realities that are put in front of him by the media. And I think that if anything, reading Nick's interview should should make people kind of stop and think about all the folks out there who have many good reasons to, you know, question things. And it's not just that they're dumb or, you know, politically, uh, you know, like motivated one way or another. Like, you know, we're all complex human beings trying to do the best we can with what we've got. And Nick, I think, is a perfect example of that. I was so touched by the way he talked about duty. I mean, he didn't have to stay in that job. He had a better paying option, actually. But he felt this sort of duty because it was a job that needs to be done, that a lot of people don't want to do, and that he could do well. I was really touched by that. And it made me think there's another moment in the book where you're talking to Willie, a gig worker, and this part of this permanent underclass uh, we now have of precariously employed people. And you both are talking about how you grew up with conservative values. And there's this great interchange about the benefits and the drawbacks. You know, there is this ethos of hard work and self-determination, but we also are living in this era of extreme income inequality. Like there are limits to that. Can you reflect a little bit on, on that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, just another incredible human being. Um, But as you said, I think like one thing that I really love about that interview with Willie is that as two Latinos who had grown up in conservative households, we do talk about the process of coming out of that, you know, conservative mold and, and how talking to people and working in the jobs that we have were big parts of that. And Willie made a great point where he was like, I see a lot of people like myself who get trapped by that conservative ideology in things like gig work because you you believe that if you just work hard enough, you can climb your way out. That's That's how I was raised too. And the problem is that these gig companies and these apps they are designed to be like quicksand, right? But they constantly like, you know, change the rates. They constantly find ways to lower your take-home pay. So the harder you work, the farther down you go because they're also constantly trying to bring in new gig workers to kind of like flood their labor supply and stuff like that. And so, you know, he mentioned that, you know, when he talked to conservative workers, uh, a lot of them were very attracted by that, you know, be your own boss mentality as he himself was. But at some point, you know, he realized that it's like, well, you know, like we're getting screwed here. And, you know, like having grown up conservative, it made me more able to speak to the concerns where maybe like, you know, folks who have never grown up in that circumstance 
would have a harder time connecting with people on that level. So yeah, I think it really was an incredible story and Willie really is an incredible person. Mm. And I wonder too, I mean, you spoke to a sheet metal worker, Kyle, and he said something really interesting that I've been thinking about that he thought attitudes towards unions and towards the working class were really changing. And I, I was thinking about, I know you were on the ground with the Amazon labor union and, you know, watching that unfold. Do you agree with Kyle? Do you think that attitudes are changing towards unionization? I think they are. I mean, you know, I know it's kind of become commonplace to point to like these national polls saying that like people are more in favor of unions nationally than they have been in decades. Right. Or, you know, there were other polls showing like the overwhelming public support for the Amazon labor union for the Bessemer workers who were trying to organize a union down in Alabama. And so, like, I think we can only glean so much from those types of polls, but it sure as hell feels like a shift from the world that I grew up in, right? Granted, I was in a, I was grown up in a conservative household in Southern California, Orange County to be specifically, which in a lot of ways was like the heart of the Reagan revolution. It's still heavily conservative. And I just remember watching Fox, listening to right-wing radio in the car, Rush Limbaugh, Dennis Prager, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, all these, all these folks, Larry Elder, right? Unions were always vilified, right? You know, they were always either painted as explicitly bad and corrupt. And the reason why, you know, consumers were suffering or, you know, uh, parents of school children you know, had to deal with like bad teachers who could never, ever, ever be fired because of, you know, the union stuff. Like those are the kinds of stories that we heard all the time. It was always like we as consumers were always pitted against workers and unions in that way. The ruling class did an incredible job there pitting people against one another in the 80s and 90s. And and we were very much swept up in that. Or if the unions weren't outright vilified, they were presented as like a sort of vestigial historical appendage, like they were important sometime in the past and the struggles that workers fought, you know, in the heyday of organized labor in like the 1930s and 40s and 50s, you know, that gave us important, you know, things like the weekend, like, you know, safer workplaces and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But after that, we didn't need them anymore. The market took over. And, you know, like the market would solve all of our remaining problems. And I think that over the course of the past 20 years, more and more people have seen it's like, well, the market is not solving our problems. It is making them worse (laughs) and is creating more. Right. You know, we are seeing how market incentives, you know, like the market incentive is to charge full steam into climate chaos because it is profitable for a few companies that are destroying the planet, right? It is profitable. That includes the military industrial complex. That includes oil companies. That includes Wall Street investors. The market, you know, like is telling everyone like, hey, this is the most profitable way to go. Even if the planet itself and the human beings who are already suffering are saying, this is not working for us. We are destroying our shared world. So that's just one clear example, right? Of how the market 
what what's good for the market is not good for humanity and we need to like you know kind of really do something about that and i think that more people are waking up to that not just in the realm of you know the climate but also just in the basic economy that you know we all live and work in right you know with the decline the coordinated decline of organized labor in this country right you know we we know famously that ronald reagan became union buster in chief in 1980 and that he broke the air traffic controllers strike in 1981 and with that he more or less declared open season on the labor movement and so you know then you saw like just a whole lot of employers in the private sector go after unions and use the same tactic that reagan did which was if people go on strike if people want to organize we're going to fire all of them and we're going to replace them Right. And we're not going to face any consequences there. And so you see these graphs that show from 1980 onwards, union density just nosedives over the past 40 years. And yet worker productivity has continued yeah. to shoot up. American 70, workers. 70%. Yeah. So we are more productive than we've ever been. We are generating more profit than ever before. But with union density going down, our share of those profits that our labor generates has gone down, right? And so more and more of the fruits of that productivity is being siphoned into the pockets and coffers of the 1%. And so again, like this is the market doing what it does. This is the quote unquote market solving our problems when what it's really doing is it is enriching and empowering a very small few while the rest of us are kind of in what Bernie Sanders famously called a race to the bottom, right? Like that's the dawning realization that I think more and more people have had at varying points, right? It's been a process from the Great Recession. I think that was the big sort of break. Then, you know, we had things like Occupy Wall Street, but over the next decade, right, it's been a kind of boiling, slow process of people learning more and more ways that this sort of economic system and the political media and market, you know, private market elites who govern it, right, are really just robbing all of us blind. While we are working harder, we are working longer, and cost of living continues to go up. We've also gone the longest period in American history without raising the federal minimum wage. The amount that workers get paid for the amount of work that we do in this goddamn country is bonkers to me. And yet right now we are talking about how workers like minor gains in wages over the past year is responsible for inflation. And it's workers who need to be kind of have their wages cut once again, while, you know, like Donald Trump oversaw like one of the greatest transfers of wealth to the 1% with his tax cut a few years ago. And Corporations are on earnings calls bragging about having seen the largest rise in their profits since like the 1950s. So like more and more people are waking up to the fact that like this system is screwing all of us over. It is like created a permanent caste system where the oligarchy gets to decide what our society does. And it is ultimately leading to more war. It is leading to planetary destruction. So we've mm. got to do something and it's got to come from the ground up because the people at the top aren't doing anything about it. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair too, I think like we've seen during the pandemic, this massive 
transfer of wealth. And that's happening under Democrats, right? Like there's, and this is what I wanted to end on just by talking about the modern left. To put my own cards on the table here, I come from the left. I'm a lifelong leftist. I believe in most, you know, leftist economic policy. I believe in class analysis, but I'm very disillusioned with the left right now. And part of it has to do with the fact that the elites are on the left as well. And that there's, you know, the things that made me a leftist for so long, wanting to look at material conditions, being pro-labor, being pro-working class, being pro-free speech, these things are now drifting into the territory of the right. I don't know what to make of that. What do you think about where we're at with the modern left? Oh boy. So, I mean, I think it's a really important question that I could answer a lot of different ways, but I guess just picking up on that last point that you make, I think that in many ways, the kind of consistent psychosis that all of us have on the left and on the right, right, is that we do not ultimately question the power structure that has led to our societal demise. What I mean by that is that you know, like we do not have real institutional power on the left. And a lot of the problems that you laid out, what I see is people not trying to build that institutional power, not trying to build that coalitional grassroots power and to actually strategically and effectively use that power. What we are essentially trying to do is you know, take the existing power structure and make it serve our ends. And that's not Mm. going to happen. What I really try to kind of communicate to people and they can take it for what it is, right, is that what makes me a leftist is that I believe in working people, right? My allegiance is to working people. My belief is that it is working people in the U.S. and around the world uh, who are going to get us out of this mess if we are going to get out of this mess. It's not going to come from on high. It's not going to be bequeathed to us by Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or, you know, any politician, right? You know, we are living in a society that is being run into the ground that I, in my view is the, you know, like inevitable kind of result of a, power structure that has taken all decision-making power out of the hands of working people and that has put it in the hands of a few technocratic elites to essentially like decide what society's priorities are, what the solutions to our problems are going to be, and what problems we, we even recognize as problems in the first place. And that's what I see. Like we're talking like two weeks after the horrific mass murder of school children and teachers in Uvalde, Texas, and people's immediate response the same day, the same hour that this was happening was nothing's going to change. We've seen it. We've seen the people in power. They're not going to do anything. They're going to deflect or they're going to like, you know, say we just need more guns and more police and that's going to be it. And the problem's not going to get any better. Again, I see that as a symptom of a people who feel like they have no power and who have accepted that they have no power. What makes me so hopeful about the labor movement is that it is a space in our world, not just in the United States, but around the world. It is a place where working people actually know and learn that they do have power to change their circumstances and that that power comes from the collective. 
Well, there is such a strong kind of humanist bent to this and uh, optimistic bent and a real view of what is good for the greater good. And so I appreciate that. And I appreciate the book. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.